It is May 1940, a glorious spring day. The air full of the bouquet of blossoms, the buzzing of bees, and of birdsong. It's as if the afternoon could not contain any more beauty. Elsewhere in Europe, death marches, war is raging, men are committing atrocities in the name of ideology and of nationhood. But here in Saint-Martin-Dardèche, the south of France, the war still feels a world away. It is someone else's war, happening to other people. Here it is spring. From the house, perched up high on a rocky ledge, you can see people approaching, and it must have seemed to the young woman standing at the window as if the war had decided to visit, when the afternoon was interrupted by armed gendarmes that had come to arrest her German lover leaving the surrealist artist, Leonora Carrington, alone. Suddenly, all the beauty of the day sucked away. Hello, and welcome to the Amuseum. Today's broadcast is from the series, She Speaks Volumes, a primer for a millennia of often neglected writing by women philosophers, artists, scientists, and thinkers. A vindication of the works of women, so to speak. This is episode one of season two, and I'll admit I've done an absolute crap job at consistency in the past, but season two is like New Year, and my resolution is to do better. I can commit to one episode of She Speaks Volumes monthly, and one episode of the Amusium podcast, which will focus more on exploring the themes rather than the writers. More information on this is on the website, feralculturelab.com, and my new website, theamuseum.ca. Links are in the show notes. The theme of season two is Women's Ways of Knowing, also known as magic. The next two episodes of She Speaks Volumes are about the surrealist painter Leonora Carrington, who in addition to being a painter and a sculptor, was also a prolific writer. In this episode, Leonora Carrington's work is being read by my mother, Verna Sorrentino. If you enjoy She Speaks Volumes, please consider supporting the podcast at buymeacoffee forward slash the Amuseum. A link is in the show notes. Your support helps me to pay the voice actors and helps cover the cost of producing the podcast. It also feels pretty amazing when someone supports your work, even a little. If you don't know who Leonora Carrington is, then I am so excited to be the one introducing you to her. And if you are already familiar, I hope you discover something new in these episodes or rediscover something that turns you on. It is a crime that Carrington has been largely overlooked. She is distinctly feminine. She is visionary, a hugely influential artist for surrealists and a well-known artist within her adopted country of Mexico. Leonora Carrington was born in Lancashire, England, in 1917. Not too far from where I was born, though our experiences could hardly have been more different. Carrington's family were new money. 
Her father was a textiles magnate, and then moved on to manufacturing chemicals, the kind of chemicals involved in making nuclear weapons. As wealthy and as powerful as her father was, Northerners, like the Carringtons, were never fully accepted into the class-conscious Southern British elite. Though Leonora was presented at court, and did her season, reluctantly, as a debutante. Read the fantastic metaphorical tale, The Debutante, in her collection of short stories. Carrington's biography is fascinating. It's complex, and it plays a huge role in her work, particularly Down Below, the book we are unpacking in this episode. Down Below is Carrington's subjective account of her own involuntary internment at an asylum in Madrid in 1940, having been diagnosed and committed as incurably insane. I begin, therefore, with the moment when Max was taken away to a concentration camp for the second time, under the escort of a gendarme who carried a rifle. It was May 1940. I was living in San Martin d'Adèche. I wept for several hours down in the village. Then I went up again to my house, where, for 24 hours, I indulge in voluntary vomitings, induced by drinking orange blossom water, and interrupted by a short nap. I hoped that my sorrow would be diminished by these spasms which tore at my stomach like earthquakes. I know now that this was but one aspect of those vomitings. I had realised the injustice of society. I wanted first of all to cleanse myself, then go beyond its brutal ineptitude. My stomach was the seat of that society, but also the place in which I was united with all the elements of the earth. It was the mirror of the earth, the reflection of which is just as real as the person reflected. That mirror, my stomach, had to be rid of the thick layers of filth, the accepted formulas, in order properly, clearly and faithfully to reflect the earth. And when I say the earth, I mean of course all the earth's stars, suns in the sky and on the earth, as well as all the stars, suns and earths of the microbe solar system. In 1937, a 20-year-old Carrington was studying art in London when she met the artist Max Ernst, who was like a million years older than she was. They bonded, and she abdicated her privilege and wealth and abandoned her family, absconding with the old man to Paris. As romantic as this is, it's also reckless. War was already inevitable, and in running away she was making herself unmarriageable, making herself the topic of gossip and bringing scandal to her family. Her family had probably counted on Leonora marrying well to improve their position in society. Women, wives and daughters, were still thought of as property, and for property to up and leave and exert its autonomy... Well, these were bridge-burning decisions that one could not easily undo. Carrington was still only 23 years old when Ernst was arrested for the second time. The full weight of her situation may have hit her like a freight train, estranged from her wealthy family and friends, alone in a country being attacked by Nazis. Shortly after Ernst's arrests, Friends came to San Martin to find Carrington not coping well enough to be left on her own. They decided to escape France and make a perilous journey to Spain. The car started. 
I was confident in the success of the journey, but terribly anguished, fearing difficulties which I thought inevitable. We were riding normally when, 20 kilometres beyond Saint-Martin, the car stopped. The brakes had jammed. I heard Catherine say, The brakes have jammed. Jammed? I too was jammed within by forces foreign to my conscious will, which were also paralysing the mechanism of the car. This was the first stage of my identification with the external world. I was the car. The car had jammed on account of me, because I too was jammed between San Martin and Spain. I was horrified by my own power. At that time I was still limited to my own solar system and was not aware of other people's systems, the importance of which I realise now. We had driven all night long. I would see before me on the road trucks with legs and arms dangling behind them. But being unsure of myself, I would say shyly, there are trucks ahead of us, just to find out what the answer would be. When they said, the road is wide, we'll manage to bypass them, I felt reassured, but I did not know whether or not they saw what was carried in those trucks. Greatly fearing I would arouse their suspicions and becoming prey to shame, which paralysed me. The road was lined with rows of coffins, but I could find no pretext to draw their attention to this embarrassing subject. They obviously were people who have been killed by the Germans. I was very frightened. It all stank of death. Carrington had clearly not lost the British trait of avoiding awkward topics. After numerous hold-ups, much red tape, and Leonora's behavior becoming increasingly alarming, Catherine and Leonora finally arrive in Madrid. In Madrid, Carrington meets with a man, Van Ghent, whose son works for her father's company, Imperial Chemicals. To me, Van Ghent was my father, my enemy, and the enemy of mankind. I was the only one who could vanquish him. To vanquish him, it was necessary for me to understand him. He gave me cigarettes. They were pretty scarce in Madrid. And one morning, when I was particularly excited, it dawned on me that my condition was not solely due to natural causes and that his cigarettes were doped. The logical conclusion of this idea was to report Van Ghent's horrible power to the authorities and then proceed to liberate Madrid. An accord between Spain and England seemed to me the best solution. I therefore called at the British Embassy and saw the consul there. I endeavoured to convince him that the world war was being waged hypnotically by a group of people, Hitler and co., who were represented in Spain by Van Ghent. That to vanquish him, it would suffice to understand his hypnotic power. We would then stop the war and liberate the world, which was jammed, like me and Catherine's fiat. That instead of wandering aimlessly in political and economic labyrinths, it was essential to believe in our metaphysical force and divide it among all human beings, who would thus be liberated. This good British citizen perceived at once that I was mad and phoned a physician, Martinez Alonso by name, who, once he had been informed of my political theories, agreed with him. 
That day, my freedom came to an end. Look at the show notes in this episode for additional biography and links to Leonora Carrington's work. To learn more about the other writers covered in this series, and to learn more about the other topics I explore, subscribe to the Amusium newsletter. A link is in the show notes. This is 1940, and women could and were still being committed, particularly in the upper classes, for the shameful act of not being able to confine themselves to the narrow role defined for them. Despite the very real degradation of Carrington's mental health, it might not have wholly been the reason for her being committed. She could also have been treated for making herself unmarriageable, for making a spectacle of herself and her family. Her rebellion against the role defined for her could have been seen as mentally unstable. Her actual breakdown, her inability to cope with the humanity she sees, might not have been what upset people. I don't think there can be too much argument that Carrington's mental health was in jeopardy, though, to me, it seems to be a perfectly rational response to the irrational and horrific circumstance she finds herself in. Carrington's articulation of subjective experience is what makes Down Below so compelling. Some things are obviously aspects of her delusion, but they are also appropriate metaphors for her reality at the time. And some things, it's hard to say. It's plausible that she saw trucks with arms and legs dangling, and it certainly fits our narrative of the war, but it could also just be imagination. Tuesday, 24th August, 1943. I'm afraid I'm going to drift into fiction, truthful but incomplete, for lack of some details which I cannot conjure up today and which might have enlightened us. This morning, the idea of the egg came again to my mind and I thought that I could use it as a crystal to look at Madrid in those days of July and August, 1940. For why should it not enclose my own experiences, as well as the past and the future history of the universe? The egg is the macrocosm and microcosm, the dividing line between the big and the small, which makes it impossible to see the whole. To possess a telescope without its other essential half, the microscope, seems to me a symbol of the darkest incomprehension. The task of the right eye is to peer into the telescope, while the left eye peers into the microscope. Carrington's work, her characters, her tableaus, are not thought up so much as pulled from an alternate dimension. Her paintings tell stories, and they're rather fable-like. Human-animal-alien hybrids concoct recipes, such as in Grandmother Moorhead's aromatic kitchen, or conduct elaborate rituals, as in Adu Amenhotep. One does not need to suffer to create, and losing one's grip on reality does not make one a better artist or more creative. Carrington's breakdown had nothing to do with her work. One only needs to look at her work before the asylum and after. Is it different? Well, yes, it is. She'd left an important relationship, lived through a war, and moved to a completely different culture on the other side of the planet. Before the internet. But she's already present in her work before the asylum. 
To me, and I am willing to be wrong, I am no art critic or expert, her work before the asylum feels very influenced by Max Ernst. Carrington was young, about 20. An influence, of course, is normal. Early on and down below, Carrington runs into Van Ghent and tries to give him Ernst's passport. He refuses it, and her response is, Ah, I understand, I must kill him myself, i.e. disconnect myself from Max. Surrealists have a fascination with definitions of sanity, and Carrington had held a certain mystique for having been committed, but also because she was a young woman, and the mostly male Surrealists seemed to believe that the femme en femme brought them closer to some sort of mystical life force, as if the power of young women could be harvested and used for their own ends. But Carrington had agency. Maybe when she was young she was Max Ernst's girlfriend, but she never intended to stay a handmaiden to someone else's work. She had her own voice. If there is a difference in her work before and after the asylum, this is it. The images she conjures afterwards are more purely herself. And this conjuring of images feels very much like witchcraft to me. Indeed, much of Carrington's work is rooted in folklore and myth and infused with esoteric visual language that may truly be understood only by Carrington herself. In the Amusium podcast, I'm going to be exploring this act of seeing, pulling images from somewhere other than an intellectual thought-up idea. In the next episode of She Speaks Volumes, we are covering The Hearing Trumpet, written in 1974 by Carrington. It is a testament to female friendship, old women, and magic. Thank you for listening. Thank you.